Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. It's my pleasure today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Carlene Montes Dioca. She grew up surrounded by secrets. She never knew that her dad was a Marine during World War II or that her grandmother hired kidnappers to bring her mother back home after her parents eloped. But her mom and dad took an even bigger secret to their graves, Carlene's identity. At 57, a DNA test taken just for fun revealed that Carlene's parents were not her biological parents. New information. The rest of the information about her family, her lineage, and her identity would be the journey of discovery that would result in Carlene's memoir, Junkyard Girl, a memoir of ancestry, secrets, and second chances. Carlene is also the author of Dog is My Doctor, Cat is My Nurse, and serves as a sought-after expert on human health and well-being. Carlene, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project, and welcome to you. Thank you, Betsy. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So, Carlene, the title of your book, and for those of you who haven't yet seen it, it's a beautiful cover of a little girl sitting on top of what looks like a junky car with a sweet-looking dog next to her. And the title, Junkyard Girl, and the subtitle, A Memoir of Ancestry, Family Secrets, and Second Chances. Can you tell me what makes you a junkyard girl? And tell me a little bit about the title and subtitle. Sure. Well, I'll just say that the title began as Junkyard Dog, and then we ended up switching it because we realized after the title was up, and even with that subtitle, that everybody was thinking it was totally a book about rescuing a dog, when actually it was a story about my own personal rescue and adoption of myself. But anyway, so it, it changed into Junkyard Girl, And the reason um, with that subtitle is that that pretty much explains everything in a nutshell about what the book is about. It's about ancestry. It is about a massive family secret that not only my immediate family knew, but my entire extended family, which included 63 first cousins, everybody pretty much knew except for me. And it is also about second chances because... In the end, when you discover something that, that, gosh, that big about yourself, I mean, it's either going to be that you probably don't want to either talk to anybody else again in your family who kept that major secret, or you have to kind of come out of that and and reassess what family is all about. And I think there there was a lot of second chances that came from that. Well, you've just given me all kinds of things I want to chat with you about. <laughs> so okay. first of all, let me go backward and then we'll go forward. Sure. The the junkyard girl, what, what, where'd the junkyard come from? Tell us about that. The opening scenes of this book 
with you as a child of about age five, if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a few weeks since I read. Tell me about the junkyard girl part of this. Tell me about your what circumstances you grew up in, in what you later learned to be your adoptive non-biological parents. Tell me about that existence first. My parents, simply put, were hoarders. I mean, my mother had domain of the inside of our house, and there it was just stuff was everywhere. And my father had domain of the outside of our home, which was a half acre of land in Southern California, in a uh, in you know in a, in a neighborhood, and there was just stuff everywhere, and. Maybe this is one of the ways I was completely different from the rest of my siblings because it bothered me to no end. I always felt just completely suffocated by all of it. I so badly wanted to be rid of it and to get out and to be in the sunshine and to be in space and not have these things around me. So the word, so junkyard girl, that's where that comes from. And how many siblings were in that non-biological family? Yes. There, well, there were two, I have two brothers that grew up that I grew up with and a sister and the young, the person who was next to me in age was my sister and she was nine years older. So everybody was a little bit older than I was. So you were the end of the trail kid or so yes. you thought not yes. to only to discover later on that that was different. So, so here you are in this for, I'll use your word in kind of a hoarder existence, a hoarder house, a hoarder yard and I know from talking to other adopted people, both those who knew that they were adopted and those who only discovered it later, is that they they often have something that you describe that you kind of hinted at a moment ago, which is you felt other. Mm-hmm. There was something in you that never quite felt part of a family. And I think lots of us feel other in lots of ways. We we never feel like we're fully accepted at the cool kids table or we're, we don't quite fit in our community. There, there are lots of ways in which different people feel other in, in their world, or even if they're with their biological family, but they're very different. They're an artist in a family of engineers or those kinds of things. That, that feeling can be pretty universal, but among adoptees, it seems like there's a profound to the other feeling. And it sounds like you felt that as that kid, that somehow your siblings were fine with all the junk in the yard and the house, but it bugged you. It, it was something in, in you that didn't feel like that was harmonious with who you were. Absolutely. And yes, you're right. And that's how I explained it away. Because what you described is, what if you're an artist amongst engineers in a family? So I thought to myself, okay, I look different than everybody else. I'm shorter than everybody else. I, I'm five foot three. My brothers were six, four and six, three. Everybody was very tall. I, my, my father was light skinned with green eyes and two of my siblings look so much like him. And if you see me, I'm dark haired and dark eyes. And so therefore, yeah, I felt different. I also, maybe even more than the physical, I felt in my mind and in my spirit, just very different. And you could ask probably anybody in that huge extended family that I described, and they would say, she's the odd one out. She's the different one. Just mm. the way I was in life in terms of, I think I'm a much more adventurous person than anybody else in my family. I wanted to get away more than anybody else in my family. In fact, somebody once said to me, he goes, God, you just did whatever you wanted to do when you got out. And mm. that's... Um, 
I try to do that because it's our one life. It's our one chance. And I just want to live it as fully as possible. But that wasn't the orientation in, in that adoptive no. family. And and also, let's clarify, too, this family was a, a family of immigrants from Mexico. Yes. And so you you also are Latina in your ethnic heritage. So there wasn't that cultural difference there you you came from a culture not dissimilar in those ways and or an identical culture for that matter so tell me so you grew up in with this kind of feeling of you know i'm the odd one out i'm the strange one and perhaps one of the most shocking things i found in your story was the fact that like you said not only did did your immediate family they all knew you were adopted because of the circumstances which I'll get to in a second I'll ask you about but your entire extended family cousins aunts uncles 60 60 how many 63 63 first cousins and yes. community members uh, other people they all knew that you were adopted and and for 57 years nobody told you that's correct how does that happen well, Betsy, nobody should ever hire me as a private detective because obviously I'm very bad at picking up any of those clues and putting them together. Well, d- but, when you look when you look at it uh, with 2020 hindsight, do you then see ways in which you were kind of told but didn't pick it up, or was it just like people were really mum about it? I will say that there were probably lots of little slips here and there, even the joke of. When people would see us and as a family, people would sometimes joke, oh, are you adopted? Thinking that I wasn't, but it was a joke because I didn't look like anybody. And yes, I mean, there were, I sometimes think that my parents must have spoken about it in low whispers in the kitchen. My bedroom was next to the kitchen because Mm. I was even sharing with my husband recently how as a writer... I'm often, before all this happened, writing about adopted children or an adoption or a, or a kid who just somehow loses his parents and finds his other parents. And I'm thinking, or even growing up thinking, I'll never have my own children. I'll adopt children. And, and I didn't do either. I have stepchildren now. But where did those ideas come from? I, I explained it in my book as this unexplainable knowing that we probably all know certain things, but it just hasn't come out in, you know, in our conscious thoughts. Well, you know, I, I hear people talk, it's certainly in uh, military or espionage, they talk about the unknown or the known unknown. They know they don't know something, but yours is the unknown known. You you seem to have known something in your bones without really being conscious of it in a full way. Does that describe your experience? I think you, you hit it spot on. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so, so you grew up feeling this other feeling in this junkyard, feeling like the junkyard kid <laughs> and junkyard girl and all of that. And then at age 57, tell us about this, you know, and and you are not the only, as you know, individual who's discovered uh, because of now Ancestry.com and and all of those kinds of services where you can do DNA tests to determine your lineage. There are lots of such secrets being uncovered in people's life, people discovering that they have a different parent or a different father or whatever than they thought they did. I know that Danny Shapiro recently in the last couple of years, published a book called Inheritance, 
And here she's written for decades about her family and all, and not feeling part of, and then she discovers, <laughs> not unlike you, that she wasn't biologically part of. So tell me about the how you went and came to do this test and, and what happened after. I took the test because my mother, as you said, I grew up Latina, but my mother had always said that we had a Jewish lineage in our family. And I was very curious about that. So I decided one day just for fun and to see how much Jewish blood I had, took this test. When I got the results back, that should have been a clue, Betsy, because all of my cousins were coming in at 40% Jewish and I came in at 3%. And so I, I, but I was so busy at the time. I'd been working on a book at the time and I was busy and I just set it aside. If I had actually read it, the material that they sent me clearly I would have noticed a lady's name that was written on there. And if I had really looked at it, I would have noticed that it said, this is a potential half sibling, but I didn't. I, and I figured I know everybody in my family. Yeah, whatever. And I was busy. So one day I'm on Facebook and a little message comes on and it's from some guy who says, you look an awful lot like my wife. And I thought, God, what a flirt. And I ignored him, but he kept Of course, it. because we all get those guys with the roses holding puppies and all of that, right? All those <laughs> yes. stupid things. So you just dismissed that like it was a scammer. Absolutely. And then uh, he kept at it. Then he sent me a picture of a woman. And he, when he said, well, do you think she's your cousin? Do you think? I said, you know what? I think maybe this lady and I shop for glasses at the same store. And he said, <laughs> well, ancestry DNA says different. And I went, whoa. And I said, what, who's your wife? And how do you know that I even took a test? And it was this woman's name who had come up in my results. And so she and I connected and she said, I'm just looking for family. And she didn't know who I was. And I certainly didn't think we were related. But I said, I would ask my siblings because my parents were deceased now. So I'd ask my siblings, do they know anybody she might be related to? Never in a million years thinking she'd be related to me. And my family, who is generally a very lighthearted, laughing kind of family, we have, they were so serious that I sh that should have been another clue. What's going on that they're so serious? Uh, about two weeks later, my sister, who I'm very close to, my adoptive sister, flew out from California to Santa Fe, where I was living, and said, something big has happened in our family, and I have to talk to you about it. And she proceeded to take out these pages she had written on the plane. And then she started to cry. And she said, I, I can't, I have to read it to you. And she said to me, Carlene, she goes, you were adopted. You know, this was a secret that we, I had to keep from birth. You're adopted. That woman who reached out to you is your half sister. She is, you know, and basically she explained that I grew up in Southern California in Carpinteria. And my mother had gone to visit a friend of hers in Montecito, which is the next town over. And she heard a lady crying in the background. And when her friend came to the door, she said, who's this woman out here who's crying? And she said, oh, it's my cousin. She's here from Chicago. She's not married. She's got a baby on the way. She's already got two kids. And I'm not. And she wants to get an abortion. And I'm not going to help her. And so my mother took this woman, this perfect stranger, pregnant, two kids to live with them. And my parents did not have much money. They were like lower middle class, you know, and took them to live with her until I was born, told this woman, we'll adopt your child, we'll raise her, gave the woman money to go back on the Greyhound to Chicago. And then she took my siblings around the cradle and said, this is your new sister. 
she's Hmm. adopted and you're never to tell her she's adopted because people will try to hurt her because it was the sixties and children out of wedlock were, had a stigma. They came from Mexico where the stigma was bigger and that's how it all began. So the original big secret was a secret, uh, albeit flawed in its logic, loving. It, it was to protect you or Absolutely. against perceived or real possibilities. Also, would it be protect them against th- this mom coming back and wanting you back or any of that? My parents, I mean, anybody who reads Junkyard Dog might feel that I, I had a really tough mom, you know, and maybe a tough dad. They might, they might feel this, but I have only seen my parents do everything they possibly could for their children. I never saw them go out to dinner on their own to spend money for gifts for themselves. They always put it into their children's education, that, you know, whatever they could, because that was the most important thing to them. So I don't believe my parents had that fear of themselves. Hmm. They had a fear because they saw in Mexico children grow up out of wedlock. And I know they had experiences here in the United States, and they did not want that to be my future. Well, so you were born what year? 61. So that was still the year, that was still the era in which a, a child born out of wedlock would be called a bastard. And and there, and there And certainly in... Uh, religious families and those kinds of things, that would be a huge stigma. So they, like you said, they were protecting you. So you discovered this. Now tell me about the next leg of your journey, that the journey of discovery beyond your perceived family to your biological family. That was probably the toughest experience I have ever had in my life. I mean, we all know what it feels like when you might lose a loved one or, you know, for in my life, I've had a divorce, you know, those things are really hard or I've had people get really sick and you feel that loss and that grief. But this was this experience of losing my identity or having it fractured in this way was like nothing I have ever felt before. It felt like the ground was gone from under me. And it was really hard. And at first I had a physical reaction when my sister started reading those pages that she had written about what had happened. I stopped being able to actually clearly hear her. It felt like there was cotton in my ears and it was a shock. This is what I think what happens when you go into shock. I could see her lips moving, but I couldn't clearly hear what she was saying. And then when that ended and she had gone away, I started crying and I couldn't stop. And I'm not much of a crier, but boy, I was crying washing the dishes. I was crying, tying my shoelaces. I was crying watching silly shows on television. And my husband would say, why are you crying so much? And I said, I don't even know. And I think what Hmm. I was crying about was that I felt this fracture in the foundation of who I was and everything had been built upon that. Uh, You know, my foundation was this family and everything Everything I was, I had been a film editor in my early career. Then I was an acupuncturist. Now I'm a writer and I have, I've developed relationships and everything that came on top of that kind of was splattered all over the ground. So 
that was a really hard time. And after a couple of weeks of feeling that massive, unsettled, disturbing interior kind of feeling that I didn't know where to go, I then had to have a really big talk with myself about how I was going to have to move through that. And how I decided to move through that was to kind of dig deep into my toolbox of little resiliency tools I've developed over the years and start using those to heal. Well, let let me pause you there for a minute and go there in just a moment. Because what you're talking about is, I I don't know, I don't know if I have the right word for this, Carlene, but it's, I I think of it like an invisible loss. It's one thing to... You, your parents passed away, you, you mourn them, you grieve them, you, you go to a funeral, you, you know that something is lost. But when you lose something that isn't a thing you can see, a person you can touch, there's this, uh, it's like you lost something that didn't exist. And so it, I would imagine it's really hard to put your mind around that. I think of people discovering, for example, uh, that I, I have an acquaintance who had been married for many, many years to a partner, had a perception about her whole life, and only to discover that her partner had an entire different family simultaneously and a parallel life. And so that shakeup, you talk about it being a shakeup of the foundation. It makes me think of, it's like you had to completely redefine everything you've ever thought because you built everything on one level and it make it, i would imagine that it makes you question absolutely everything that you thought about yourself everything and that's why in as you as you know in my book i had to go back in time and relook at everything because i had a whole new filter it was as if those memories that i had about growing up with my family in that junkyard and the relationships we had and the you know my connection with my parents had to be redefined i had to, i was looking at it with a magnifying glass and looking at all mm. uh, yes i had to go back to the beginning to the first memory i had to look at it all again to piece it all back together well and also have to reexamine y- your relationships with all of the people who hadn't been truthful with you all this time I would imagine that you had to kind of reevaluate, well, now, can I trust these people? They lied to me for 57 years. Was that part of the shift too? I can't quite explain why that hasn't been part of the shift because Hmm. I've spoken with plenty of people who have had not quite the same situation, but other, what we call late discovery adoptees. And I think a hundred percent have issues with trust. I don't know if it's because I don't know why I can't totally come to terms with why I completely still trust my family. Yes, they did. And I was, I I was, I was disturbed by it. I mean, definitely. I feel that if I, if my sister was the one who discovered she was adopted, well, one, I would have been the one to tell her after my parents passed away, I would have gone to her and said, Hey, you know, and I know it would have been hard for her, but um, I, I still trust them. I still love, I think it's because love and understanding and maybe understanding Trump's trust for me Hmm. that on the, underneath the layer of it all, I understand why my parents did what they did. And I understand after talking to my siblings, how much they took to heart, especially my sister of my job is to protect my sister from everything that could possibly hurt her. And she took my parents promise to heart. So it sounds like you, you understood their motivation. Yes. And, and admired it. Do you wonder, 
you must wonder, <laughs> let me, let me presuppose it. You must wonder why, how long is the period between your parents passing and your discovery of this new truth? And, and did you wonder why when they passed, you didn't get told? Uh, yes, that, that is the thing that bothers me perhaps the most out of this. Uh, my mother had been, it'd been 17 years, I think, for my mother, 10 years for my father, plenty of time there to be told, to give a gap and to tell me. And I know one of my siblings wanted to, but uh, I think nobody else wanted to. And it's just, I, I believe that the way that my siblings confront issues, hmm. you know, I think, I think that they felt like, well, we'll tell her if something happens, but, and again, I'm not that way. I am completely different from them and how I would approach something. Uh, and yes, it bothered me for many reasons. One is because I understood my parents, but they were my siblings and I felt like a promise, which is something, which is nothing to me, a promise versus a person who's alive and has the right to know what their identity was. So they had promised your parents something, but you, but perhaps with your parents' passings, they would have been freed of that promise. Um, well, I just think to myself, somebody is gone and you've made a promise to them, but here's the person who this directly affects. Wouldn't your allegiance then be to the person who's still alive here and deserves to know? So that's my thought. Secondly, medical issues. Well, well that was going to be my exact next question. If you have your own personal medical history, I imagine you've been filling out a form every time you go to the doctor, like we all do with your past history of, you know, heart disease and this and that, according to your, your non-biological parents. So you had inaccurate health information. Did you, so tell me about the discoveries that you made then, of course, when you connected to your biological family and what you discovered there. Well, I'll just start with the medical history. You're absolutely right. It was very, it, it, to, to this day, that bothers me. I go into a doctor's office, they give you the whole form and all I do is hand it back and go, I don't know my medical history. I'm adopted. And it's a trigger every single time I go there because I think of all the time I've spent in the past filling out those forms only to have had the incorrect information. So that very much bothers me. Regarding my biological family, I, you know, it was a huge concern to me when I did meet my birth mother, probably about three weeks after I discovered everything that had happened. I've, I heard, I found out that she was presumed dead, but I found out that she was alive and in a state hospital in Chicago on hospice. Mm -hmm. So the woman who I had met previously who reached out to me was my half-sister. She asked me if I wanted to go. She hadn't seen our birth mother in 20 years because my birth mother was mentally ill. I don't know if she was schizophrenic or bipolar, but nobody had seen her in all of that time. So it was a huge concern to me to find out that I was that closely related to somebody who had that mental illness. So that's new medical information that's not so cheerful. No. And I, fortunately, I did see a therapist who that was my biggest question out of all the therapy. It's like, could this happen to me? And fortunately, I don't believe that it ever will happen to me. So you were able to connect to this family and your mother, your biological mother was on hospice at that time. Can you tell me about that encounter? 
That was so surreal, Betsy. I mean, because the problem is all of this was happening so fast. It wasn't like I had a few months to- That's just three weeks. That's a long time to change everything about yourself. (laughs) Okay. I'm glad you understand. Oh, Uh, No, when I was reading this, I was thinking, man, that's a whoosh. And at the same time, I was also thinking, oh my gosh, how fortunate really that the connection got made before this biological mother passed her. You wouldn't have been able to- make that connection at all. So tell, tell me briefly about that, that encounter. Well, um, I got to Chicago where she was and I met my half sister, which was a surreal experience in itself. And then the following day we went to the, um, to the state hospital, which was another surreal experience because you had people moseying everywhere, somebody shouting, help me, help me. And, you know, people coming up, it was very strange. And then they, orderly was wheeling my birth mother towards me in this huge wheelchair. And I was still in the first stage of grief, which is denial. I go, this cannot possibly be my birth mother. She looked like an Irish elf. She looked completely different than I, than I do. And I just could not fathom that my adoptive mother was not the woman who gave birth to me. And the thing was, she was not only was she mentally ill, but she also had Alzheimer's or some form of dementia. So she didn't even know who Martha, my half-sister, was. She kept pushing everybody away. Much less you. Much less me. And then the moment came when, so I didn't even try to say anything or do anything, but at one point I found myself sitting right next to her, just watching her. And I thought to myself, I feel nothing for this woman. How can that be? I believe I'm sort of an empathetic person and I can find connection with people but I couldn't find it. So when she wasn't looking, I literally reached out as gently as I could and just touched the back of her hand thinking, oh, I'll feel something. I'll feel this connection to my birth mother. And then she sort of caught me doing it and kind of flicked me away. And I thought, and a friend of mine kind of made a joke like, wow, she flicked you twice there. But oddly, I felt no connection whatsoever. And that still kind of boggles my mind. Well, of course, she wasn't so connected to herself at that time either. You know, with with, uh, dementia comes that detachment of self. So it might have been that you you might have been able to tune in to her had she been more cognitively connected and, and have that sort of function remaining. So I, I don't yeah. mean to explain it for you because I, I know they, these are questions that you have to grapple with, but I, I think it'd be, I think that had you, some people that have grown up with a parent who suffers mental illness and has moments of dissociative moments or detachment, or a parent who doesn't have mental illness, but then later in life develops dementia, they can experience that. I can't connect to this person feeling under those circumstances. And here you have also a 57 year gap <laughs> from, from, from whatever your biological connection was to her. Well, I want to go back. We just have another moment or two remaining. I wish I could talk to you for hours. The, these, the, the, the constraints of time always drive me a little crazy here, but you mentioned a toolbox. This had to be so the word that I kept, that kept coming to my mind as I was reading your story is disorienting. This whole thing is just disorienting. It's a redefinition. It must set it, it set you a, a twirl into confusion and figuring it out. Tell us a little bit about 
how you got through that shock, confusion, dis- <laughs> disorientation. What is that toolbox that you referred to of how you get through challenging times? I think disorientation is the perfect word. What I did was I had to sit down with myself and and the first tool I pulled out was basically feeling to get to the healing. And by that, I mean that I used to be somebody who not would not want to feel things and just set them aside. Mm-hmm. Instead, I said, whatever feeling I am experiencing, because there were so many from disorientation to confusion and shock and anger and grief and loss, I said, whatever comes up, I've got to feel it, uh, recognize it, and then let it move through me. So it wasn't like boggled, bottled up somewhere in my psyche. And and the thing was, I'd had to rinse and repeat that many, many times. And part of that came, that was my first tool. And part of that was, uh, my second tool was also having faith. And that's not a religious term to me. That's more of a having faith that I was being given something that I would be able to handle. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I wouldn't be given this unless I was going to learn something from this. In addition to whatever other meanings might be attached to that word faith, it sounds like it was faith in yourself that yes. you'd be able to handle it. Yes. And I felt that if I can move mindfully, mindfulness being another tool, if I can be conscious and aware, as painful as these feelings are, because nobody wants to live in confusion and disorientation, but if I could move through it and understand it's just a feeling, it's just an energy, and let it allow allow it to move through... I knew I had a faith that there would be some lessons or some treasure on the other side that would make me better as a human or more, more of myself. So let me ask you that as my final question. So what's your treasure? What did you discover? Well, I had to, uh, my, I think one of my biggest treasures was re-understanding the meaning of family and that blood is not thicker than water. In fact, there's another term that they believe blood is thicker than water that that term comes from, which is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb, Mm -hmm. which really means that the people maybe you are connected to not by blood, but by through experience and time. And those are the people that really make up your family. So I, I reassessed what that meant. And also not to hold on to things so tightly. I had no idea how tightly I was holding on to my identity. Mm. And when that got taken away or fractured, that was unbelievable. And so it always reminds me whenever I'm feeling too attached to something to just be a little freer with it and just to let it move and have its own energy and its own life and not to be too attached. Mm. That acceptance in a way, isn't it? And surrender. It is. It is. It's like the Buddhists who make those mandalas, and then they're so beautiful and and intricate, and then they sweep them away when they're done. <laughs> that's that's what that's a huge lesson for me from this whole experience. Hmm. Well, junkyard girl, a memory of ancestry, family secrets, and second chances, by Carlene Montes Dioca. Carleen, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project and sharing your story. I so appreciate it and look forward to our future encounters. Thank you, Betsy. I really enjoyed your questions. My conversation today with Carleen Montes de Oca 
I love her name. You know, I think about what it must be like to have one's identity taken away at age 57 when you've had that much time to be who you thought you were and then it gets redefined. I found that moment kind of fascinating and I also loved what Carlene said when she talked about how, how did she put it? She needed to do have the feeling to get to the healing. In other words, kind of let her feelings, her reactions, her fears, her anger, her frustration, her confusion, her all of that. Instead of pretending it wasn't so, she had to feel it to get to the spot where she could recover from it. I wonder how many times we put things away too tightly only so that they fester in invisible ways until such time as they cause us further harm. And she talked about how she had to rinse and repeat, (laughs) which I took to mean that she had to do this in many ways, many times with many different kinds of feelings. That's a pretty good strategy for coping with change, with confusion, with other kinds of emotions that come up during times of loss or trauma or disorientation. So I'm really grateful that she gave us that. Junkyard Girl, a memoir of ancestry, family secrets, and second chances. Available through your indie bookstores. I hope you'll check it out. And that you can use this story and all of the others that you find as a way to help you to bloom. <laughs>